Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 2, which uh, we're actually going to finish the week of creation, but uh, they didn't make a very good chapter break in the Bible at this point. Uh, A lot of people don't realize, but the chapters in the Bible were added in the 13th century, and it wasn't until the Geneva Bible came out, I think it was in... uh, 1560 that uh, they put the verse references in there and you know what fallible people did it and uh, you know it's like well why didn't you just like end the week you know in verse 4 where it should have been but they didn't do that and uh, so we are going to finish the week in the next chapter but before we begin let me pray and then we'll get uh, to our text for this morning. Father, we come before you asking that you would speak to us through your word as we consider that last day of the week of creation where you sanctified and hallowed the seventh day. And Father, as we consider that and consider the implications of it and consider uh, laws and regulations derived from it and the amazing application to us as believers May we leave here blessed, encouraged, and praising you as we learn more about you and this special seventh day. And we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. I, you know, I'm sure most of us, if you've been a Christian a while, you've ran into somebody who told you, you need to be worshiping on Saturday, on the Sabbath. Um, maybe you've driven along and you've seen Seventh-day Adventist uh, uh, on a, a sign or, or the a Church of God Seventh-day or Seventh-day Baptist. And, uh, and you've read your Bible. You know that the fourth commandment is to keep the Sabbath day. And you know that Jesus kept it. And there's all these regulations in the Bible about the Sabbath. And, and maybe you're wondering in your mind, I wonder why we don't keep the Sabbath. I mean, after all, we keep all the other nine of the Ten Commandments. I mean, you know, we we don't kill people or steal or covet or, you know, those kinds of things. We're not supposed to do that. So how come it's okay to not worship on Saturday? Or has the Sabbath switched to Sunday now? Some people will say, yes, uh, I'll see you on the Lord's Sabbath. And you're thinking, is it Saturday or Sunday? Um, You know, and so these are the kind of questions that a lot of people have. And they a lot of times don't ever get the answer to it. But this morning we are. And uh, we're going to get the answer from it because... All the Sabbaths in the Bible, as a matter of fact, the number seven, which we, if you've studied the Bible, you know, is uh, uh, a number of completion. And the reason it's a number of completion is because God finished up and rested on the seventh day. So there's a whole lot of cool things related to the seventh day. And we're going to see some of those things this morning. So God created space, outer space, and he filled it full of planets and stars and nebulae and comets and things like that. He created the atmosphere and he filled it full of flying reptiles and birds. He created the seas and filled it full of fish and coral and shrimp and scallops and lobster and with butter. No, no, there was no butter on it, but you could put butter. Once you pull them out, then butter goes on them. Um, Yeah, he filled the sea with things. And then he took the land masses he created and he made all sorts of animals, uh, creatures from insects all the way up to dinosaurs, all those things. He created all those things to populate the land mass. And of course, his, his greatest creature, the creator, creature that reflected his own image was man. 
He created man in his own image. Uh, The image of God in man consists of several things. One, that man has certain attributes that God has, which the animals do not have. Not only that, uh, man has a function which is similar to God's and that he was given uh, the command to rule over the earth, the animals, the creatures, the land, everything. He, uh, Adam and Eve were to be king and queen of the earth. Of course, they handed that back over to Satan, who is now God of this world, when they chose to reject God and submit to Satan as their king. And so he has been the God of this world ever since. But at the beginning, that was the purpose for man to rule and reign. God gave man instructions. Have lots of babies, increase in number greatly, and spread out all over the world. And so that's what we have looked at so far. God said, after that was all done, that behold, it was very good. Tov me oath, it was exceedingly good that God would create all of these multitudes of creatures, living creatures and things, which just incredible precision and mechanics and physics, just mind-boggling so from the microscopic level all the way up to huge galaxies spiraling through space with perfect timing, uh, just amazing type stuff. God did all of this and it was very good. There was no sin, there was no death. There was no rebellion. Satan was still a good guy. And that's how it was at the end of the sixth day. Then we come to our text in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, although we're only going to look at verses 1 through 3, 4. It's kind of a little postscript on, on creation. But this is what we read in the Word of God. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the day the Lord God made the earth and heaven. Now, from our text, we're going to just point out three key facts about the seventh day and its practical implications for our lives today as New Testament believers are going to kind of blow through the first two points and then get to the juicy stuff. Um, uh, First, God completed creation in six days. And we've already discussed in great detail why the days of creation are literal days, morning and evening, day and night, one rotation of the earth on its axis, 24 hours. And there are no, no huge gaps stuck in between the days. There is no huge gap between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. It's like the text reads. It's a simple 24 hour period a day like we know today. And if you look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, it says, thus the heavens heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. The words heavens here, and we've discussed this before, it's actually used several ways in this context. Sometimes heaven is referred to as the atmosphere where birds fly around. Sometimes it's referred to as outer space with the stars. Um, Sometimes it refers to where the angels and God, the spiritual realm that exists. So there's those three different uses of the words heavens. And since Moses, in this one verse, is summarizing all of creation. I think we should take it on the most comprehensive way to refer to the atmosphere and outer space and the spiritual realm with the angels and all that exists. 
He also says, and all their hosts. And you think, well, what are the hosts? Well, I think everything, again, the most comprehensive thing, all the stars, all the planets, all the water creatures, all the flying creatures, all the land creatures, man, angels, everything, all the hosts that inhabit all the realms which God spoke into existence, as Exodus uh, 20 verse 11 says, that in six days the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and all they contain. In Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17, talks about Christ, that he created all things, both visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions, all things are created by him and for him and through him. And so we're talking about God's comprehensive creation, and all it's saying here is God finished it. God finished it. Sometimes the host is referred, uh, used, uh, the heavenly host is referred to angels, uh, like in 1 Kings 22, where it says, uh, it speaks of all the hosts of heaven were standing by God on his right and his left, or, you know, when Jesus was born, the heavenly hosts appeared saying, but I think we should just take it as everything, everything, all the entities that populated the realms that God created, space, land, sea, and the spiritual realm. Look at verse 2, where we see that by the seventh day, God completed uh, his work, which he had done. Here we are basically told the same thing, except that when the seventh day arrived, by the seventh day, letting us know that God didn't create any more on the seventh day. It was already completed when the seventh day came. So that's our first point. Not much there. Second point gets a little bit more interesting. God rested on the seventh day. And this is a little interesting because the middle of verse 2 says he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And um, the word rest means to cease, to put an end to, to stop. Uh, You know, you could get the idea that God got tired. You know, that he was worn out, man. He's like, whew. Man, those galaxies, man, those are draining, you know. Um, I need to like recharge a little bit. And there's actually a text which kind of alludes to that, actually uses a word uh, in relationship to that. It's Exodus 31 verse 17, speaking of one of the Sabbath day regulations. It says, uh, God says, it is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth. But on the seventh day he ceased from labor and then here... And was refreshed. Now what's interesting is every other place the word refreshed is used. It it speaks of people who worked hard. Walked hard. Did a lot of physical exertion. And then they stop. You know. And kind of recouped. And we're thinking well well, did that, that happen with God? No it didn't. You say well then why is that word used? It, because it's an anthropomorphism. And everybody knows that. I'm sure you use that word frequently. But anthropos, the word meaning man, to uh, we, we speak of morphing, um, to change into. It's an anthropomorphism is when God is described in human-like terms. Father and son are an anthropomorphism or uh, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro. Have you ever seen the Lord's eyes running about? No. Uh, the strong arm of the Lord. Uh, God is a spirit. So God uses certain human-like terms and characteristics so that we can relate to him better. But we know he didn't get tired. And you say, well, how do we know that? Uh, One text I'm just going to give you to verify this. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. 
He even uses it in relationship to creation. The creator does not become weary or tired. So God's batteries didn't run out. What it means when it says he rested is that he ceased from creating. That's what it means. Okay, third, God blessed the seventh day. And this is when it gets, there's a bunch of things. We, more things that we can talk about, but I'm going to talk really fast and see how many of them we can get in. If you look at verse 3, it says, Then God blessed the seventh day. Now, you might think about, you know, how do you bless a day? You know, I can understand, because when you look at the word blessing, it means to cause to prosper, to be fruitful. And you're thinking, well, how does a day become fruitful? I can understand mice and rabbits and, and animals and people being fruitful, but a day? How, how is that? And not only did he bless the seventh day, verse 3 says he also sanctified it. You see, well, isn't that used of usually like people or to make holy, to set apart from one thing to another is really what it means. Uh, We speak of growing in sanctification and what that means is to be set apart from sin to God, to become more godlike or more holy. The word holy and sanctification are basically synonyms to be set apart unto the Lord. When you put both of these terms together, they basically mean the same thing. They mean to be treated specially. To be set apart for, blessed, so the day would be a fruitful day, a prosperous day, a day set apart unto the Lord. That's why it is. Now, what did God do that made it special? Well, he didn't do any creating that day. You say, well, is that all there is to it? Well, that's all there is to it. Look at the middle of verse 3, where we're giving... Uh, this understanding is confirmed why God blessed and sanctified the seventh day is given because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So there it is. God ceased working. This made the Sabbath blessed, set apart, holy, different from the other days. But see, what about our question? What about our question of, uh, so why don't we keep the Sabbath then? Well, this is a perfect opportunity to give you a little Bible study principle that everybody needs to know called the interpretive principle of progressive revelation. And this is another thing, which I'm sure all of you go, oh yeah, we were just talking about that in the foyer. (laughs) All this means is this, is that when God revealed different truths or doctrines in the Bible, he didn't say, let me tell you everything I'm ever going to tell you about that doctrine right now and give it out. No, he added two doctrines as time progressed so that more and more information was added as the Bible was being written. For instance, we learn the first mention of Jesus or the Messiah or some sort of redeemer in Genesis 3.15. The woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. And then later on uh, in uh, God's covenant to Abraham in chapter 22, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And as you go on, God reveals more and more and more about Jesus to us. And we don't know what, even what his name is. Eventually he's called the Messiah, the anointed one. But at first he's just in your seed or the woman's seed. And, and so as the Bible adds to the doctrine of Christ progresses, it's like a wedge in that farther along the Bible trail, you have more information that has accumulated. It progresses, it increases. That's what we're talking about. So the principle, the interpretive principle of progressive revelation says this. When you're studying a passage, especially in the Old Testament, 
And you come to a certain place in the Old Testament and you look in your text and you see a doctrine in your text. Do not go downstream and take information that wasn't yet revealed and freight it back into the meaning of that passage. Interpret every passage in light of everything they knew up to that point. Not what wasn't revealed yet. If you take information that hasn't been revealed yet and you read it into your passage, that's called eisegesis. Reading into the text something the original author never had in mind. The original author would go, whoa, I didn't know what meant that. You know, when you write a letter, you know what it means. You wrote it. And when somebody comes along and says, yeah, I'm reading your letter. and Let me tell you what you meant here. Because somebody else wrote something down there. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't read into the passage. We do what is called exegesis. We take out of, we excavate from the text, the truth that is in the text. We don't read stuff in the passage, which the original author or the original audience could not have understood. Okay, that's just something. Now, why do I mention that? Because everybody knows the Bible has tons to say about the Sabbath. Now, let me ask you this. How much about the Sabbath has been discussed before Genesis 2, 1 through 3? None. This is the wellhead of the Sabbath. These are the headwaters of the Sabbath. Nothing has been set up at this point. This is the first place they're written. And so we can't, even though it's, man, we know lots about the Sabbath and all these Sabbath things downstream. We cannot take that information and put it in our passage and say that's what he meant because he didn't. We have to take the passage in light of everything he said up to that point. Since nothing was said, we can only take our passage. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying later on God said this. But we just need to make sure we don't say that the interpretation is what wasn't yet revealed. So, when we look at our passage, uh, we need to realize that a lot of different things aren't mentioned about the Sabbath. Uh, John MacArthur, commenting on our text, has said this, It is worth noting that the context of the Genesis creation account, that no mention is made of any rest for Adam. In fact, man is not even mentioned in connection with the seventh day creation rest. Above all, no ordinances man mandating the Sabbath rest and worship is expressly instituted here. There were no restrictions governing what Adam could and could not do on the seventh day of the week. All of that came later with the giving of the law to Israel. The word Sabbath doesn't even appear in Scripture until Exodus sixteen twenty three. That's like 20-some hundred years later. We're talking a long time later before the Sabbath is even mentioned in a regulation. A lot of times we have this idea, and the reason we have it, and I'm going to show you why we have this idea, we kind of have this idea that God created everything, rested on the Sabbath, and instantly the Sabbath was instituted. Why? Because almost every key text that gives Sabbath regulations refers to creation. And I mentioned earlier, Exodus 20, verses 10 and 11. By the seventh day is a Sabbath 
of the Lord your God in it. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He's not saying that the Sabbath has existed since then. That is a weekly observance. Uh, it's being instituted this time, the first place in the fourth commandment. It's mentioned in chapter 16 in relationship to collecting manna. You remember what happened? God rained man after they left Egypt. He rained man on, from them on heaven. So every morning they would go out, they would pick up the manna, and God says, get one day's worth and no more. If you collect more than one day and try and hold it up the next day, it will rot. So don't do it. So what did they do? They collected a whole bunch and it rotted. God says, okay, listen. On Friday, go out and collect a double portion And it's not going to rot because on Saturday, I want you to stay in your tent. Do not go out and do not collect the manna. And they go, okay. And if you do, I'll kill you. Okay. Incentive. So what happened was, is that was the first place kind of Sabbath was alluded to, but it really isn't stated as a command or a regulation until we get to Exodus chapter 20 and the people of Israel have left Egypt. They're camped at Mount Sinai. God is speaking to them from the mountain, verbally giving them the 10 commandments. And that's when the regulation appears some 20 some hundred years after the creation account. So, That is helpful in understanding some things. I alluded to Exodus 31 verse 17. I actually read it earlier where it again speaks of four and six days. The Lord made the heavens and the earth in relationship to the Sabbath day. So we have the fourth commandment and it is it is described over and over again. Exodus 20, 23, 34, 35, 37, Leviticus 23, all those texts state the need to completely rest on the Sabbath, do no work, even in harvest, not even your animals, not even a visitor, not even a sojourner, not even a slave, no one, no rest, no, or no work, just rest, 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 and just stay rested and don't do anything. Okay? It's very clear. Now they say, well, then what are you going to do on the Sabbath? You know, what do you do? You worship the Lord. You remember the Lord. You think about the Lord. You think of what he did. And you think about um, his creative acts and his great deeds. And you pray and you fellowship with believers. And you do a lot of the things we do here on Sunday. That's what you do. Now, you might think to yourself, well, so why did God make them rest Well, you need to remember, when he first instituted the Sabbath, where did they come from? Egypt. And what did they do in Egypt? They worked seven days a week as slaves. So one of the reasons God gave the Sabbath is to give people physical rest so they could rejuvenate, so that they could then enjoy the rest of their week. So he gave it to them as a physical blessing. But he also gave it to them as a spiritual blessing so they could be spiritually rejuvenated, spend some time with the Lord, Worship the Lord, pray. Later on, the tabernacle would be made. Later on, the temple, they would go offer sacrifices. Uh, They would give. They would fellowship. They would sing songs. All of those things were all focused around this day of rest as a day of spiritual rejuvenation. I want you to think about that. Spiritual rejuvenation as well as physical 
rejuvenation. Sabbath rest was uh, for those primary purposes at the beginning. But what is amazing and what is even more interesting is that later on, more regulations were given following patterned after God resting on the seventh day and the Sabbath. For instance, a sabbatical year was instituted. Uh, During the sabbatical year, Leviticus 25 says that they had to let their land lie fallow every seventh year. Now, what was up with that? Well, think about it. If I am worshiping every Saturday, if I'm doing no work on Saturday, I'm already basically, in effect, giving one-seventh of what I have to the Lord. I'm making a sacrifice of one-seventh of my income. Especially when all the pagans around me are all working seven days a week, but I'm not. So they're getting ahead, theoretically, because they get to work seven days a week and I only get to work six. But God says, I will bless you if you take time to worship me and you rest up physically. It's a good thing for you. And so God then instituted a sabbatical year, which means every seven years you need to let your land lie fallow. You harvest in the fall and then you just leave it alone. Think about that. Let the weeds grow. Let the vines grow. Don't trim anything. Don't pick anything. Just leave it alone. Now imagine how unnerving that would be. You would really be forced to what? Trust the Lord. You'd have to trust him to provide for you working six days a week, and on that seventh year, you'd really have to trust him. Because then, it's like, okay, Lord, now I'm going to make my crops big this year so I can make it. And, and what if you had a poor crop on the sixth year, and you really didn't have anything? Oh, it'd be so tempting to plow the ground and just say, Lord, I know you're a forgiving God. I'm plowing anyways and planting. You know, that would be the huge temptation, wouldn't it? But God is saying, I'm going to take care of you. He also said on that year that any Israelite who had fallen on hard times because of bad decisions or health or poor business dealings or weather and farming catastrophes or whatever, who got so poor they had to sell themselves into slavery, they were to be set free. Not only that, Deuteronomy 15 says all debts were to be forgiven on the sabbatical year. Now, if you combine all of this together, it's, the sabbatical year is kind of cool. And it's cool because on that seventh year, okay, most people lived off the land. So I'm not farming. I'm not plowing. I'm not weeding. I'm not doing any trenches. I'm not doing anything. What, what do you do for a whole year when you're a farmer and you can't touch your ground? I visit with you. You visit with me. We have vacation for a year. (laughs) All of us together. The whole country. And God specifically said, now, because all debts are forgiven, some of you who are going to have more money and who are going to be places to lend, I don't want you thinking, well, I'm not going to lend to you because it's the sixth year and it's going to be forgiven in a few months and I'll lose my money. Now he says, you go ahead and be generous and I will pay you back. And he says, those of you who who have to let your slaves go free, 
You help them out. You help them get established. You provide for them during that seventh year. So during the seventh year is a time for the nation to trust the Lord as a nation and to be generous to those in need and everybody have an extended vacation to trust the Lord to provide for them. Is that amazing or what? That is that is really amazing. You can see how God was really trying to bless them. Because man, I'm going to take care of you. You're going to like what I'm going to do for you. You just... Make sure you let the land lie fallow, forgive all the debts, let all the Israelite slaves go, just, you know, do all these things I'm telling you, and you're going to have a great time. And so you know what they did? They never obeyed. And so God made them obey all at one time. After 490 years of disobedience, he said, well, let's... Let the lie, the land lie fallow for 70 years in a row. Now, you go wait in Babylon. Because they wouldn't let the Lord bless them. So the Sabbath and the sabbatical year are amazing because it's a day of physical rejuvenation, a day of spiritual rejuvenation, a day of worshiping the Lord through singing and giving and sacrificing and fellowshipping. It was a mechanism that caused the Israelites to trust the Lord to take care of and provide for them. In relation to the sabbatical year, it was a time when slaves were set free, debts were given, were forgiven, and the land was to lie fallow. So all of this is all kind of uh, going to be based off of God resting on the seventh day. He sanctified that day. And so all these other Sabbaths were derived from later on and given to Israel to bless them. So this brings us to the whole subject of how come we don't worship on Saturday. Well, first, you need to understand some basic facts about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not Sunday. It never has been and it never will be. And God never said, I'm now switching to Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. He never said that. Uh, there were some uh, uh, very zealous uh, people, or non, some Puritans and Presbyterians, who started speaking of the of Sunday as the Lord's Sabbath, and so people started referring to Sunday as the Sabbath, but it's not. It's the seventh day is the Sabbath, Saturday, and Sunday is the first day, and there it'll never be the Sabbath. It just never is. Uh, by New Testament times, the Jews had added just to the simple Sabbath commands many elaborate traditions. Like, you know, you can't lift anything that weighs more than a fig on the Sabbath. You can't walk more than a Sabbath day's journey, which is 1,000 paces. However, if you need to go 1,800 paces, if you take a little trinket with you from home... You can walk or just shy of a thousand paces and stash it somewhere and, and just kind of wait there for a little bit. Now it becomes home base. Then you go an extra thousand paces. <laughs> they do that today. You may have been in some parts uh, of the San... They do this in different parts of the United States, but in San Fernando Valley, I've seen them where you see these yellow wires kind of going by the, the telephone lines. You know why those are? Those are markers... So you know how far you can walk on the Sabbath. And a lot of those markers lead to a synagogue. Because they don't want to go over a Sabbath day. They're, they're trying to follow these different traditions that have been added to the Sabbath. And when I was in Israel, they had Sabbath day elevators. And, um, and 
you know, you'd be waiting for an elevator and, um, you know, it just goes up and stops and every floor opens up, closes, next floor opens, closes, next floor opens, closes. I mean, all the way up and then all the way down again, 24 hours all on the Sabbath. See, why is that? So you don't have to work by pushing a button. Do you see that? These kinds of man-made additions to the Sabbath became made the Sabbath a huge burden rather than the blessing that God intended it to be. And I'll just show you an example of this. Turn to Mark chapter 2 in your Bible, and we'll see how this is. Mark chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 23 and following. Mark 2, verse 23. A little episode in Jesus' life where the Pharisees were irritated at him. It says, starting in verse 23 of Mark 2, and it happened that he was passing through the grain fields, Jesus and his disciples, on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to him, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. His point is this. Do you remember that time when David and his army were starving and they needed some food and they went to the high priest and said, man, we're starving. You have anything to eat? And he goes, man, the only thing we have to eat is the bread of the presence. Now we may think of a couple little loaves. These are like huge three foot discs of bread. They're massive. He goes, take them. Now it was, it was unlawful for anyone to eat that bread. So the question, Jesus's question to them is why was it okay for David to plunder the sacred bread and give it to his troops? I'm sure they thought, hmm, that's interesting. Because the bread of the presence was never intended to be observed, even if it meant that people starved. Jesus and his disciples are going through the field. And at that time, the Old Testament says, when you're going through a field, you can pick an apple and eat it. No harvesting, no, you know, T-shirt full of apples. But yeah, you can pick an apple, some grapes. You can go through. As a matter of fact, when I was in Israel, there was a place on the Sabbath. We went, we grabbed some grain, rolled it in our hand, blew out the chaff and ate it and just kind of neener, neener. It was cool. And that's what you can do. It was, it was lawful to do that. And Jesus says, listen, we're obeying the law. We're not doing any major labor. We're just having a snack, walking through the field. Do you remember David? And he uses that as an example. The Sabbath is not made to burden men is Jesus' point. The Sabbath was made so men would be blessed physically and blessed spiritually. You, however, by all your regulations and added traditions, have met a grief to people, so they loathe the Sabbath. It's a burden to them. So, the correct observance of the Sabbath, Sabbath should be a blessing, not a curse, a joy and not a burden. That's what Jesus taught. But the question remains. So. Why don't Christians. 
keep the Sabbath? And the answer is, we do. And you may be thinking, we do? Yeah. And you're thinking, well, how's that? We're going to find out right now. That's why you're here. First, Christians don't need to observe the seventh day Sabbath. We don't have to worship on Saturday. We don't even have to worship on Sunday. Romans chapter 14, uh, verse 5, speaking of Christian liberties, says, One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each person be fully convinced in his own mind. You want to worship on Tuesday? Do Tuesday. Wednesday? Fine. Friday morning at 3 a.m.? Go for it. Well, you show up here Friday morning at 3 a.m., it's no one's going to be here. You say, well, then why, 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 why is it that so many churches worship on Sunday? I mean, why is it? Well, during the early church, one of the things that happened is, is the Christians wanting to make a demonstration that they were not under the law of Moses and they did have their liberties in Christ, still wanting to practice corporate worship. Corporate worship is commanded. Uh, if you're going to imagine what would happen if we all chose our own day to worship. Where would the musicians be? You know, you show up, it's like, hey, who's playing the piano? I don't know, they worship on a different day. And no one set up sound. Oh, they worship on a different day. And so it's convenient if everybody says, let's all worship on a certain day, and then you can have some corporate worship, right? Well, that's what happened in the early church. The church started gathering together, and they started worshiping on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day the Lord rose from the, the dead, not because it was commanded. They just chose to do that. You can worship any day you want. Paul says you can regard every day alike or you can pick one day above another. As a matter of fact, in Colossians uh, chapter 2, um, as Paul, you know, describes some of the things that happen that believers are, you know, forgiven in Christ. And he says, I think in verse 16 and 17, uh, therefore do uh, let no one act in your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, Paul there refers to the Sabbath as a shadow. What is a shadow? Does a shadow have any substance? No, but the thing that cast a shadow does. He says the Sabbath is a no-substance shadow of Christ. Add that to important thoughts. Sabbath, spiritual rejuvenation. The substance of the Sabbath, Christ. Okay, those are our two important thoughts. Keep those there because they're all going to come into play. The Bible doesn't say, though, we have to worship on a certain day. You can worship on... Whatever day you want. Some have chosen to be Sabbatarians. They've kind of Christianized the, the Sabbath and said it's been shifted to Sunday. And they kind of, you know, you can't work. You can't do anything. You can't whatever. And, and they kind of have a kind of modified Sabbath view. It's just not in the Bible. Sorry. Um, uh, I dabbled in Seventh-day Adventism as a new believer and later did a lot of study on the Sabbath. I actually met with a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, uh, Seventh pastor for 
months talking over the Sabbath just to hammer it out with him and uh, just was able to come up um, with a very clear understanding of the Sabbath. Because, you know, they teach that if you don't worship on the Sabbath, you're going to receive the mark of the beast and perish. So, you know, it's a big deal. Everything's about the Sabbath. But there's one great text which is so encouraging. It's a little complex, and uh, it's got a pretty detailed argument, but it's amazing, and it's super encouraging. And so we're going to look at that now to show you why you who know Christ keep the Sabbath. And that's in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Turn there. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Here, in, in the book of Hebrews, if you ever studied the book of Hebrews, you, you know that in five different places in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews stops to address fence-sitting Jews. Those are Jews who are hanging around the Christians, but they're still offering sacrifices and they're still trying to be saved by works. They haven't committed to Christ, but they're kind of interested. And so he stops five different places in the book of Hebrews to address these fence-sitting Jews to get off the fence, to reject their works-based salvation, and to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. So this is one of those warning sections. Now, he mentions a lot of things, and I'm just going to give you a little, we're going to, you know, do the, you know, hypersonic interpretation of this passage, but this is so great. Um, and this is going to clarify spiritual rejuvenation, substance belongs to Christ. This is going to happen right now. Look at verse 7 of Hebrews 3. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and I and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What is he talking about here? Well, first he quotes from Psalm 95, Psalm 95. And what's interesting about Psalm 95 uh, is, and it's talking about in Psalm 95, verse seven and following, he says, today, if you hear, David's writing, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So this is what's amazing. David is speaking to the people of his day. This is like, you know, 970, BC, about the people in Moses' day, 1446 BC, not to be like them. David's saying, today, you who are hearing me through this psalm, do not harden your hearts like the day when they heard God in the wilderness and hardened their hearts. That's what he's saying. And you remember what happened. Um, God, they camped at Mount Sinai for one year and two months and then went supposedly to enter the land through the southern uh, place. They didn't want to go in and the, the, the 12 spies and only two, Joshua and Caleb, believed and they came back and there's giants in the land and they'll devour us and you've brought us out here to kill us and blah, blah, blah. So God says, okay, because you will not believe me and you will not trust me, you're going to walk around the desert for 40 years until this entire generation drops dead. That's what's going to happen to you, and that's what's being referred to there. Happy day. Look at verse 12. Take care, brethren, 
Notice the author of Hebrews is a Jew speaking to Jews. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice the problem being addressed is an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from obeying the Lord. Notice also the today that is being quoted from Psalm 95 is being applied to the author of Hebrews day too. So he says, so, so, so you're saying... That when they heard God's voice in the wilderness, that day they should have believed the Lord and not hardened their hearts. And they should have believed when David wrote Psalm 95 and thereafter. And that we should believe the author of Hebrews day when they hear the voice of God. They should not harden their heart. That's exactly what's being said. Look at verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they heard? Heard what? The word of God. Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Yep. And with whom was he angry for 40 years and made a march around until they dropped dead? The people of Israel. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Yep. And who did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? God said, go into the land and take it. And they said, no. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief, or you could say lack of faith. So notice the disobedience and unbelief of the Jews in the past is being contrasted with the faith of the Jews in the present who have believed and become partakers of Christ. The Jews of old dropped dead in the wilderness because of disobedience and an unwillingness to believe in God. Now look at chapter four, verse one. This is when it really gets cool. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Do you see that? Now the author of Hebrews is speaking of the promises in his day, of the voice of God in his day, speaking to the fence-sitting Jews in his day, and telling them, listen, pals, Don't be like the people in the wilderness who heard God's voice, didn't believe and dropped dead. Don't be like them. You hear the voice of God today and you believe. I'm warning you. Look at verse 2. For indeed, we have had the good news. Now, there's another name for the word good news. What is it? Does anyone know? The, the gospel. Yeah, the gospel is the good news. The good news is the gospel, yes, but it doesn't relate to Jesus too. Jesus is pretty much the answer for everything. You can ask all the little kids and the, yeah. What's the answer, Jesus? I mean, they know that. Um, it's instinctive. But yeah, we have had the good news or the gospel preached to us just as they also. Now, of course, their gospel was a little different because God just told them, you need to trust me and believe in me. 
and that was their gospel. Our gospel is, you know, Jesus is the son of God, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, our sins was buried, rose again the third day. Okay, that's our gospel. But the good news they had, they didn't believe in it. And so they dropped dead. And now these fence sitting Jews are receiving the gospel that we know about, uh, more thorough gospel. And it says here, but the word they heard, speaking of the past, did not profit them because it was not united by faith and those who heard. Now, this is, this is the clincher right here. This is, like the, this is the hinge pin verse of the whole warning section. For we who have believed, believed what? What's the nearest antecedent thing they needed to believe in? The good news, the gospel. Enter that rest just as he said... To those in the past, as I swear in my wrath, they shall not in my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. You say, well, 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 what happened there? What happened there is this. The author of Hebrews has just said, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you will permanently, 24-7, enter into the Sabbath rest of God the spiritual rejuvenation of God and the substance of the Sabbath, which is Christ. Oh, that's good. And then notice here, it says, the author of Hebrew makes it clear, all of this. Verse three says, we who have believed that's in the gospel and of the rest, you enter it permanently once for all. That's why I said, do you keep the Sabbath? You're probably saying, no. I said, yes, you do. You go, I do. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, you've permanently entered the rest. You've laid hold of the substance, which is Christ. The permanent Sabbath rest for the people of God. He then gives several examples of other rests to drive the point home. Look at verse 4. For he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. So you say, okay, well, he mentions Psalm 95 again, and we've already talked about, but why does he mention God at creation? What did God do on the seventh day that was different than the other days? He quit working. What was the biggest problem to the, with the Jews of Jesus' day? What were they, how were they trying to get to heaven? Working. Look at God. Do what God did. Stop trying to work your way to heaven. Cease laboring. Cease laboring to try and get into heaven. Stop. Be like God who rested on the seventh day. And then look at verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, that is the Sabbath the permanent Sabbath rest through faith in Christ. And those who formerly had the good news preached to them, those in the wilderness, failed to enter because of disobedience. They refused to trust God. And therefore, they didn't enter either the promised land or the spiritual rest. He again fixes a certain day. Oh, really? Yeah. A day. Today. Right now. Saying through David... After so long a time. In other words, he says, David comes along way later and says, today, you can still enter the rest. Just as he said before, today, if you hear his voice, you do not harden your hearts. In other words, he says, when God brings the good news to you and you hear the good news, you do not harden your hearts. Right now, you Jews can enter 
the spiritual rest permanently, 24-7. But he knows. He knows they're Jews, and he knows they're thinking to himself, well, listen, um, Joshua, he led, Joshua, Moses, you're right, that generation did drop dead, and Moses did die, and he didn't get to enter the land of rest, but Joshua got to go into the land of rest, and he led all the Israelites into the land of rest, so they went into the rest. He knows that they're going to say that. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Oh. Why did David come along and say, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts and enter God's rest. If they were already in the land and they already went into the land, the round of rest, of flowing with milk and honey. Why did David say that? Because there was another rest and they hadn't entered it yet, though they were in the land of rest. Look at verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest, which we learn from verses 2 and 3, are from believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one who has entered Jesus' rest through faith in him has rested from his works, his works righteousness, trying to earn his way to heaven. Just as God did from his, that is, as God rested on the seventh day. After creating everything, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And ever since the author of Hebrews penned that paragraph right there, the gospel has gone forth into the world. People have been given a chance to believe and permanently enter the rest, which is Jesus Christ, and to enter it through faith apart from works. And many people, because of disobedience and unbelief, have rejected the gospel. But everyone who believes becomes a permanent Sabbath worshiper. Because they have Jesus, the substance of the Sabbath. And they are spiritually rejuvenated or born again. Is that cool or what? So, that's a little bit about the Sabbath. There's more, but time has run out. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for what we are able to learn about the Sabbath. Not only God's rest but those laws and regulations which came afterwards, many years afterwards, that the Jews were to observe, not to be saved, but because they were a shadow, a shadow that was falling from the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah. And Father, now we know that your voice still cries out in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that anybody who believes in Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected for sinners is permanently brought into your perfect Sabbath rest. They receive spiritual rejuvenation, are born again, and permanently are in a state of worship 
with you, a state of permanent blessing. And one day will be perfectly physically rejuvenated as well as they receive glorified bodies as Christ did after his resurrection. Father, we pray that if there's anybody here who does not know you, who's never turned from their sins to embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior, may they do that this morning. And for the rest of us, as we leave here today, may we glory in you that every day and every moment of every day, we are blessed because we are in Christ, the substance of the Sabbath rest. We pray this in your name. Amen.